If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to uh, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8. And um, this morning, I want us to consider this theme of Advent, uh, waiting with hope. And uh, you'll notice that this is what uh, Isaiah says in verse 17. He says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. And so as we make our way through uh, Advent 2023, that's where we're going in the text. This is God's word, Isaiah 8, 11 through 22. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken and they shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And yet I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and their faces face upwards. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we uh, quiet our hearts before you now, and we ask that you would be our teacher. Your word is alive, and your word accomplishes the purposes for which you send it. Father, we pray that we would hear uh, the message of Christ even here in this text. And we pray, Lord, that you will make us a people who know how to wait and to wait with hope until the dawning of the Son of the Lord, until he returns. May we be, Lord, not like people in this book who turn to political leaders, who turn to false gods, who turn to themselves to handle the hardship of living in a broken world. May you, Lord, be a sanctuary for us even though many, Lord, will trip over you and stumble. Uh, may that not be us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, behind us, we have neighbors. And um, at the, the, our backyard, the, the fence in our backyard is a cyclone fence, so you normally can kind of see through it. Uh, but we have trees that are planted on our side and on our neighbor's side. And so I, I think that was done way when our houses were built for privacy. 
And so we know we have neighbors behind us. We can hear their dogs barking. We can see loosely silhouettes of them kind of walking. We can even hear them jumping in the pool. Um, and yet you can't see it. it it's obstructed because of, 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 of leaves that are on these trees that are, are lining our back fence. And then uh, every time, every year, this time of year, uh, the leaves begin to turn from green to red and then yellow and then brown. And then the leaves fall. And all of a sudden, like, we can see our neighbors. Like, that, that's what their son looks like now. And, and that's their little dog that we hear barking all the time. And, and it, it, we can see them. And uh, for most of the year, it's obstructed because something is kind of in the way from us seeing one another. And I think that's a helpful way to think about our passage this morning. If you think about Isaiah 9, the passage after our passage, it's a famous Advent passage. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? Like, like that's a beautiful Advent passage. But what I want to submit to you is that it's often hidden from us. We don't see it for its beauty. We can't see it clearly, mainly because it's obstructed by what we call a chapter break. We, we kind of look at chapter nine and then we, we don't really assume that Isaiah nine is written in context of chapter eight and a larger book. And so it's obstructed by familiarity. It's obstructed by this chapter break. And what I want to do this morning is kind of pull the leaves of familiarity down so that we don't have this big chapter break that, that, that doesn't allow us to see why it's good news that a son is given and why it's good news that, that he's a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I want us to sort of look at the passage and the book leading up to it to see like, man, there's a reason this was good news for Isaiah. And there's a reason it's good news for us. And here's what I want you to think about this morning, that our passage this morning comes at a hard time in Israel's history. Things are in flux. As a matter of fact, things are going to get worse before they get better. And the uncertain and unpleasant future moved many in Isaiah's day to put their hope and trust in inferior things. Isaiah and his disciples that you see in verse 16, that they labor to wait with hope. That, that somehow they're able to say, no matter what's happening around me, no matter of war and the coming calamity, no matter the death and destruction, that I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait on that child that's going to be born who's gonna come and fix everything. And I'm not just waiting passively, I'm waiting with hope, with this deep conviction that what God said he will do, he will do. And that changes how we live right now. And so that's what I want to think about this morning. And so to get there, I want to first show you that uh, there are uncertain and 
an unpleasant future, right? That, that God's people are facing an uncertain and unpleasant future. All right. So we're in Isaiah and Isaiah is intimidating. It's intimidating because of its sheer length. It's a really long book, right? It's also intimidating because of when uh, Isaiah was a prophet. He was a prophet, we think, around 740 B.C. to 700 B.C. So that's like 750 years before Christ, right? It's also intimidating um, because of the names of these world powers, you're going to hear about Syria and Assyria and then uh, Babylon. And when was the last time you were scared of those big countries, right? It's distant from us. It's also intimidating because uh, we're used to thinking about Israel as one nation with 12 tribes under one king. Right. So think about the Exodus when they went in as 70 persons. Exodus 12 says they, they left and we think that it's, it's at least a million of them as they leave Exodus, uh, uh, Egypt and wander through the promised land. That generation dies. Then they go into the land of promise under Joshua. And here's what they do. They begin to get their allotment. Benjamin, you go here. And Nephtali, you go there. And Judah, you go here, right? But then something happened. They wanted judges. And then they wanted a king. Give us a king like the nations. And so God gave them Saul. And then David. And then Solomon. And so for that 120 year period, we have what we would consider the united monarchy. Even though we're 12 tribes scattered over the promised land, we have one king. We're united. We're one nation. And then something happened. It began with David's sin, where his own son Absalom wanted the throne. Then it sort of moved even further with Solomon, who had multiple wives. And the kingdom that was united for about 120 years began to splinter. And so now the 10 northern tribes they are up north. They rebelled against the two southern tribes. So now you don't just have Israel as a collective. You have Israel or Ephraim in the north, the 10 northern tribes, and you have Judah in the south. The two tribes combined there and they had their own kings. Right. Well, guess what? When Isaiah prophesied. They weren't one nation anymore. They're two, north and south. And when did Isaiah prophesy? 740 through 700? Guess when the 10 northern tribes were invaded by the Assyrians, removed and intermarried, never to return? 722. And guess what their capital city was? Samaria. So that's why later you have this tension between the Jews and Jerusalem and the Samaritans, the Jews in Jerusalem said, you Samaritans are half breeds like you defected, like you intermarried with the enemy. You were taken from your land. You're not one of us. And so that age old conflict actually goes back to Isaiah's day. Well, guess what happened to the two southern tribes? They did not get obliterated in 722. The Lord was kind to them. 
The Assyrians did not plunder them. It was the Babylonians later in 586 in Daniel's day. And so Isaiah is caught in the middle. He's prophesying to these 10 northern tribes, hey, y'all better repent. Y'all better repent. The Assyrians are coming. The Assyrians are coming. And then when they were hauled off, he turned his efforts to the two southern tribes. All right, y'all don't be like them, right? So as that, that makes Isaiah hard because he's stuck in a hard time of redemptive history. And it's easy for us to feel like Man, that is so distant. And we're so removed from that. Now, now why, why would we say that? I think this feels distant because of hyper-patriotism, right? I love our country. There are blessings and freedoms that come with living here. But here's the mistake that I think we all make. We kind of assume that life in America will always be like it is today. And when you step back and look at world history, you see kingdoms rising, Egyptians, Persians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Romans, Greeks. These are like world superpowers. And Jesus says kingdoms will rise and kingdoms will fall. My kingdom will have no end. And we sort of assume that because we're mighty America, that in 300 years, we're still going to be like it is. And that's just not what the Bible, that's not a promise the Bible makes to us. Who's to say that we won't be plundered? Who's to say that we're going to always enjoy the freedoms we have right now? You, you can't do that. The Bible hasn't promised you that. I think another reason this feels distant is because of, of Christian triumphalism. So look, I believe that Jesus makes it really clear. I have ascended. All power is in my hand. You trust in me. My spirit indwells you. You will go out and make disciples of the nations and you will preach the gospel. You will obey the great commandment right? The great commission. And you will do so by honoring the great commandment. I love neighbor and I love God. And you will do it by acting justly, loving mercy and walking humbly with our God, right? That, that I do believe like we're called to do that. But here is where I think we slide into triumphalism. We begin to think that if there is any ill in the world, Christians can fix it, right? Think about our hospital system. There's a reason the hospital here is the Baptist Hospital or St. Dominic's Hospital, right? These Catholic origins because the church is being the church and saying, hey, the body cares and human flourishing cares. But we slip into the mistake to think that we can fix the world, that we can put it all back together again. We just plant more churches. We just start more nonprofits. We just have this radical mission and we think that we can alleviate poverty, alleviate injustice, alleviate abortion, alleviate every single thing. And here's what I think the Bible is saying. We are to be faithful, but we're not triumphalistic, right? In the sense that if we could fix the world, 
why does Jesus need to come back? The government is on his shoulders, right? Not ours, his. That he's the prince of peace. We can't really bring lasting peace here. And so what Advent is, is a reminder that we actually do need a Messiah to return. We're to be faithful in our living, but we do need Messiah to return to fix the things that we can't. Right? And so we, we begin to think that the way this works out is Jesus ascended, we receive the Spirit, we go out and are faithful on mission, and what's going to happen is that the world's going to get increasingly better and better and better and better and better and better. And then when Jesus comes back, hey, Jesus, see what we did, right? But that's not how the Bible writers think. Paul says it's actually inverted. He says, in these last days, there will come times of great difficulty. People will be lovers of self, money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, ungodly, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with pride, lovers of pleasure, right? That's what Paul is saying. That, that's what the last days is going to be like. Peter says, in the last days, it will be full of scoffing. Jesus, in Matthew 24, the last days will be akin to birth pains. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And because lawlessness will increase, the love for many will grow cold. Or Revelation 6. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they bore. Then they who had been slain cried out, Lord, how long, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And Jesus says, rest a little while longer until the number of servants should be complete who are also to be killed as you have been killed. You, you, come, you catch that? We think it's this getting better, 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 better. Boom, Jesus returns. He says, no, Jack, it's the other way around. It's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Then I'm going to come back. I mentioned that and I'm pushing there because our time is not that much different from Isaiah's. This world is unpleasant. And Christians get beheaded. And Christians get persecuted. And this world is unpredictable. Tornadoes come and they kill. And tsunamis wipe out towns. Right? Like this earth is heaving. And, and, and so here's the question for you. When do you feel it? When do you feel the uncertainty and the unpleasantness of this world, right? That's the first thing that I think we have to get behind the text and see. The second thing I think that Isaiah shows us is how easy it is to uh, have misplaced trust in inferior things. So when you have this earth heaving and calamity and hardship and suffering, like it's, it's so easy to put our trust in inferior things. 
Now, let me show you that if you read how Isaiah begins, Isaiah 1, 2 through 4, Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth. I rear children, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, but Israel does not know me. They have forsaken me. They have turned their backs on me. Now think about that image. Like, like, like as believers, we're supposed to live before the face of the Lord, right? We're supposed to like, if this is the Lord, our posture really is to be before his face, like, like looking for, to him in majesty and all. But the text says they turn their backs on him. And so if they turn their backs on the one who is good and kind and holy and true and sure, the next question we have to ask is, what did they turn their hearts to? What were they looking to to give them safety and stability and peace? And Isaiah answers it. He actually says, you guys are guilty of turning from me in the midst of the unpredictability and the unpleasantness of this world. And you have turned towards inferior things. Well, who did you turn to? They turned to other kings. Isaiah writes, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help who rely on their horses and the multitude of their chariots, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, Isaiah 31. Isaiah 31, but the Egyptians are men, they're not God, and their horses, they're, they are flesh, they're not of the Spirit. Now think about the irony there. Y'all got delivered from Egypt in Moses' day, and in the face of judgment and discipline and calamity, you're so desperate, you're turning back to the people who enslaved you. King Ahaz cut a deal with the king of Assyria, 2 Kings 6, 18. Hezekiah in Isaiah 39, who is generally a good king, he let two Babylonian ambassadors in to see the treasures in Jerusalem. And Isaiah says, you fool, you're trying to form an alliance with them. Hear the word, a day is coming when all that you showed him will be carried to Babylon. And guess what happened? In 586, it did. They trusted in other gods. Chapter two, verse six, the people are full of superstitions. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their own hands, what their fingers have made. And look at our passage this morning. Look at verse 19. And when they say to you, Isaiah, inquire of mediums and the necromancers who go about chirping and muttering, should not the people require uh, inquire of their God? Like, like Isaiah is saying in this text that that's a theme of the book, that they are turning to kings, then turning to gods, like, like pagan gods. And then notice what happens. In this section, look at verse 21. When that doesn't work, they will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. Now they're turning away from God. But notice what they do when they turn from God. Isaiah 22. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the palace of the forest. You stored up water in the lower pool. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem and you tore down your houses to strengthen your wall. You built up a reservoir between the two walls, but you did not look to the one who made it. You catch that? 
they're reaching for all the wrong things to help them deal with what was coming. And saints, can this not easily happen to us? So I, I got numerous examples, but the one that I will share now is my own failure. So we were on sabbatical this summer and we were actually in Alaska and we were about to go fishing and we have a nest camera. Anybody got a nest or a ring? And so I have a habit, like when I get up in the morning and have my coffee and do my time with the Lord and I'll just kind of look at my, okay, what's happening at my house, right? And so this morning, we were, that, that morning, we were not there. We had someone house sitting for us. And I looked at my camera and I saw my neighbor come next door. I said, oh, what does he want? And he knocked on the door and, and the, the young lady who was house sitting for us went to the door. Then I saw my neighbor walk around my house, uh, look around outside. Uh, and then I, I called him and I said, hey man, I saw you at my house, what's up? And he says, hey man, I don't know if you heard about last night, there was a string of robberies. Uh, in Northeast Jackson and our neighborhood got hit. And so then I looked at my camera feed from the night before and around 3.33 that morning, uh, four men with guns uh, walked down our driveway and I saw them going in my daughter's car, going in my car and then I saw them disappear under my carport. I don't have a camera under there. And then I saw this guy walking out with a TV in his left arm and a gun in his right arm. And he didn't get in the house. He, we have a home gym and our carport. And we, if we work out, we just kind of have it on. He got that TV. But I see him leaving. And so this is like the third time it's happened. This is the third time in the past three summers and the second time, my daughter was asleep downstairs and we didn't see it until the next morning when I went to the store and I noticed that my whole inside of my car, like somebody has been rambling through it. And so this is the third time. And I was angry. Like angry. And just for several minutes. Man, I can't wait to get back. You let them try that when I'm at home, right? They ain't the only ones with guns around here, right? Why didn't the cops do their job? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to call a professional company, and I don't want a Nest camera anymore, right? Who's going to, like, like, even at 3 a.m., even if the Nest camera would have sent me an alert, I'm sleeping. I want an active security system. I want somebody 24-7 monitoring my house through the video feed. And I want them to call the cops as soon as somebody comes in my driveway. Like, this is where I'm going. And then the Holy Spirit, about three minutes into that, he says, the Lord is your keeper. He who watches after you does not slumber nor sleep. Love your enemies. Why don't you start praying for those young men? Fear not the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the, kill the body and cast the soul into hell. And even if something unforeseen were to happen to you or your children, 
that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ. Not things present, not things to come, not angels, not demons, not powers, not rulers, not principalities. And, and, and you see, the, the Lord is not against security. He's not against police officers, that he gives those good things to us. But what he is against, saints, is our knee-jerk reaction to turn to ourselves and to turn to political leaders and to turn to our money and to turn to our wisdom that if our knee-jerk reaction in the face of the unpleasantness of this world is me or you or this then we're missing what Isaiah is saying in the text that this is the same thing Israel was doing When have you, in the face of uncertainty and darkness and unpredictability of this world, turned to inferior things to shelter you and keep you? You see, now you can step into what Isaiah is calling out. And the Lord says, those who put their trust in horses and princes and power will pass through the land greatly distressed. I'm a sanctuary for those who trust in me. But for those who trust in their idols, I'm a stone that will crush you and you will fall into darkness, right? Which moves us to the beautiful part of the passage, faithfully waiting with hope. You got to remember, saints, that Isaiah is prophesying as this is unfolding. And it's important to remember that. It's not like Jerusalem is, is on the threat of being judged and the 10 northern tribes are being disciplined. And Isaiah gets to kind of go move like 500 miles away. And so he's kind of prophesying over here in a bubble. That ain't how, how it's written. Like Isaiah is in Jerusalem when Sennacherib comes to plunder it. Isaiah can, can, he can, he can feel the hoofbeats of the Assyrian war coming. And so he is not detached. He's in it. But then notice the difference. It says the Lord spoke to me. Verse 11. With his strong hand upon me. And he warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Him you shall fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary to you. He's going to be a stone to them. But for you, I'll be a shield and a sanctuary. Isaiah is letting us in on this beautiful truth, saints. Two people can experience the same unpleasantness and unpredictability of this world. And they can experience it differently. We can have the same calamity coming at us, the same uncertainty. And where one person is, where are my idols? Where's the leaders that's going to save us? Where's my own resources, my own strength that, that they can go run away from the Lord. And that another person 
and say, no, the Lord is my shield. No, he's my rock. He's my portion. He's my shelter. I shall not be moved. I don't care what's coming my way. That's the line in the sand. And this is an invitation for us to wait on the Lord. To not fear what might, ha might happen, but to fear him above all things. The Lord wants us, like Isaiah, to believe that the absolute worst thing that can happen to us is not what any mortal can do to you. And the best thing that can happen to you is not something any mortal can give you. And then look at the sweetest line in this section. Notice what Isaiah says. I will wait for the Lord. He is hiding his face from Jacob. But I will wait and I will hope in him. He's saying, look, I know what's about to happen. But as for me and my disciples, we're going to wait. And we're going to hope. And this is what Advent is about. It's about this conviction that the Lord will one day return in majesty and power and splendor. And only at his coming will all things be made right. And until he does come, Jesus will find us imperfectly but faithfully waiting. Waiting on him like we do when we go to our favorite restaurant and the kitchen is backed up, but the server comes out and gives you free appetizers and gives you drinks and says, wait a little bit longer. Our kitchen is backed up. How else can I serve you? And you sit there and we wait and we wait knowing that the meal is going to be fire. It's like some of us who order sneakers. We do it through stock X now. Right. You see a shoe that you want. You used to have to be in a panic and go through the sneaker app to see if you might get it. But now the stock X has been invented. You go get this shoe and you know the person has the shoe because they want to sell the shoe and you buy the shoe and it's a matter of time before the shoe comes. You're waiting, right? But Isaiah is not just waiting. Notice he says, I'm waiting with hope. And this isn't hope like we normally use the word hope. We normally say, man, I hope she lets me take her out. I hope she says yes, right? <laughs> Or I hope I get into this school or I hope I get this job. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking that some future outcome may happen. When Isaiah uses hope here, it's the conviction about some future outcome based on promises made and kept over and over again. So let's go back to that restaurant analogy. All right. You go there. The kitchen's backed up. The server blesses you and you're waiting. But you want to know why you're waiting with hope that that meal will be good? Why? Because it's still under the same management. <laughs> you still got the same chef in the kitchen cooking up. You still got all the ingredients that they've been ordering from the same suppliers and you've eaten there 30 times. 
And so your waiting is not just, hey, let me wait and see if it's going to be good. No, ain't nothing changed. It's still the same. And because you've eaten there 30 times and gotten good food 30 times in a row, you know it's going to come out right. Again, it's not a blind, wishful thinking, but it's hope based on delivery and experience in the past. And saints, this is exactly what Isaiah would want us to know. Notice what Isaiah says in verse 18. Behold, I, so how can he wait with hope? He says it right here, right? Right after it. I will wait for the Lord. I will hope with him. Well, why Isaiah? He says, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel. All right. So the word for sign there is kind of this Hebrew word for a pledge. And the word for portent means this wonderful display of God's power. So here's what Isaiah is saying. Me and my children are pledges of the Lord's faithfulness. Me and my children are wonderful signs. Now, this moves us to ask the question. What's so special about Isaiah? Children. <laughs> like, that's a weird statement. Well, let me let you in on a secret. Isaiah was married. Look at chapter 8, verse 3. And I went to the prophetess. This doesn't mean he went to go visit the prophetess. It meant that he went and laid with his wife. And she conceived and she bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Like, what is that? Right? What does that mean? It means speed the spoil, hasten the plunder. It means judgment is coming quickly. And then notice how, look at what it says, before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of the Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away by the king of Assyria. So think about that. The Lord says, Isaiah, go have a kid, name him this. And you know what he says? Before that kid can say mama or dada, the northern tribes will be plundered by Assyria. And so think about Isaiah and his wife. They're watching their kid. He ain't babbling yet, so y'all got some more time. He's starting to form something. Time is running out. And by the time he says mama or dada, Y'all are judged. And Isaiah says, that's a sign. God told me to have this kid and name this kid. And guess what? Halfway through my prophetic ministry, I saw the 10 tribes fall. Well, what about this other kid? Go back to Isaiah 7, 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shir Yashuv, your son. Right? So what? What does Shir Yashuv mean? It means a remnant will return. Guess who Ahaz is? He's a king of the south. 
Let that wash over you. God has already promised through my first son, Assyria is going to plunder the 10 northern tribes. And before he said, Mama or Dada, y'all were gone. But I had another son and his name means remnant. And guess what? The, ten, the two southern tribes were never taken by the, by the Assyrians. Matter of fact, if you turn to Isaiah 37, when the Assyrians tried to conquer the two southern tribes, it says the angel of the Lord went out in their camp in the night and he slayed more than a hundred thousand of their troops. And then Sennacherib left and then his own sons killed him. And can you imagine Isaiah saying, wait a minute, you told me to name my son Remnant and we have a remnant. And you told me to name him Judgment. And I see judgment. Therefore, I have seen you mean what you say and say what you mean and keep your word. And my name is Isaiah, which means God saves. Do you hear that? Because Isaiah saw God keep his word about plundering. Because he saw God keep his word about keeping a remnant. He says, I'm not just waiting. I got hope. Because God is clutch. And he keeps his promises. There is no promise that, is, that goes unfulfilled. And so therefore, I can look forward to whatever comes my way with hope. And I think Isaiah would preach to us this morning. I think he would say, saints, my sons were not the only sign that Yahweh has given you. He actually told Isaiah, this is another sign that a virgin will have a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And he will go on to be the suffering servant that you meet in Isaiah 53. And he will lead you out of a greater exodus. And he will return to make this world right. And you will call him wonderful counselor. You will call him mighty God. He will be everlasting father. And he will bring the peace that you can't get on your own. And guess what? We're to look at that. Did God send Jesus? Yes. Did a virgin conceive? Yes. Did he bear the sins of his people on the cross? Yes. Was he prophesied to be raised on the third day as Jonah was cast back out? Yes. Has he been promised to return and make all things new? Yes. Are we there yet? No. But we can trust him. Because he's kept every single promise to us. We can wait, and we can wait with hope. May the Lord find us people who do that. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we bless you. We thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you for just little signs and reminders in the scriptures of your goodness and kindness to us. Father, make us a people, Lord, uh, who don't feel too at home here, who understand that we're 
pilgrims and strangers and exiles. Make us a people, Lord, who are quick to repent of trusting in inferior things for safety and security. Make us a people who will wait on you, who will trust you, who will hope in you. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, saints.